Welcome to The Scientist Speaks, a podcast produced by the Scientist Creative Services team. Our podcast is by scientists and for scientists. Once a month, we bring you the stories behind newsworthy molecular biology research. Many secrets are locked inside the brain, including fundamental questions of how individuals perceive the world. Some researchers are seeking answers by mapping brain activity in response to stimuli. This work typically involves human subjects, but certain scientists are branching out to understand the minds of other animals. Nikki Spach from the Scientist Creative Services team spoke with Gregory Burns, a neuroscientist at Emory University who scans the brains of dogs trained to enter MRI machines to learn more. Researchers seeking to understand the mysteries of the brain believe they can gain insights by visualizing the activity of neurons. As the brain engages in the daily activities necessary to sustain life, neuronal activity constantly fluctuates, and different actions involving the senses, movement, language, and memory cause the neurons to fire in specific brain regions. Scientists measure and map these patterns in a non-invasive way through functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI creating a picture of the brain that shows which areas respond to different stimuli. Gregory Burns has built his research career on fMRI brain imaging. He became interested in the brain when he was in medical school. What started as a general interest in how the human brain implements reward processing and decision-making transitioned into a fascination with the brains of Fourier research subjects. To understand how the brain functions, we want to get closer to what neurons are doing. And for that, we use something called fMRI. And the way that works is it's actually measuring very small changes in oxygen in the bloodstream that surrounds the neurons. So we now know that when neurons are active, they cause very slight changes in the vasculature around them. When a neuron is active or when a synapse is active, it increases the blood flow into that area. Uh, It kind of demands more oxygen because it's metabolically active. We can pick up those changes in oxygenation and hemoglobin, in part because there's an iron atom in the center of hemoglobin, and we can track those and use that as a proxy measure for neural activity. Like many scientists who use MRI and functional MRI to study the human brain, I thought, well, what else can I stick in the scanner to study? Being a dog person, of course, I look around and see my dogs and say, well, gee, I wonder what she's thinking. The thing that catalyzed me to actually do it was the mission to hunt down Osama bin Laden there was a dog on the mission named Cairo. And there were all these pictures of dogs jumping out of helicopters and doing all sorts of things that I wasn't aware of. And when I saw those pictures, I thought, aha, if dogs can be trained to jump out of helicopters, certainly we can train them to go in MRI scanners. The environment inside an MRI machine is unpleasant to say the least. When a human gets a scan, they enter a claustrophobic, two-foot diameter, coffin-like tube on their backs. During the scan, a magnetic coil is turned on and off to create changes in the protons in the tissue that ultimately produces electric signals corresponding to brain activity. The activity is recorded due to the changes in the blood flow in the brain areas that are active in response to a given task in the fMRI. As the current turns on and off, the coils expand and generate loud noises that sound like a jackhammer on concrete. 
many humans cringe at the thought of entering that environment. So, unsurprisingly, getting a dog to go into an MRI machine is an even larger feat. When you tell a human to go into an MRI scanner, they do it willingly. So they volunteer for an experiment. There's a consent form. They know what they're signing up for. And the key thing is they have to hold still because if they move, uh, you don't get blurry images. You just get noise. That's the key constraint. Most people are pretty good at holding still. With dogs, we have to teach them how to do it. And of course, they're not used to the environment either. And in particular, the noise and the vibrations that the machine causes can be very off-putting to them. So we have to create a training program for them to do this. I wanted to treat the dogs more like a human participant in the sense that they are there voluntarily. They can leave if they want. And what that means is we don't sedate the dogs. We're not going to strap them down. We're not going to restrain them in any way. And the idea was, well, let's just train them to do it because they don't know what an MRI scanner is. So if we can associate it with something fun or treats, then they will like the machine as if it's just a big toy or as some of our owners of the dogs say, a big cookie machine. For most dogs, the training takes about three to four months and not everyone is up to the task. So Burns implemented a screening process to identify the canines that would enjoy the experience. Training occurs in a large tube that acts as a mock-up of an actual MRI scanner. The dogs learn to wear ear protection and otherwise get acclimated to the loud sounds. Through positive reinforcement, the dogs are trained to walk upstairs into the tube and rest their heads on a mock head coil with a chin rest custom made for each participant. This mimics the coil in the MRI machine that picks up signals from the brain during a scan. With plenty of praise and treats, the dogs work their way up to lying down perfectly still in this contraption for at least a minute, which is enough time for an MRI machine to take a good reading. When a dog is ready to graduate to the real machine, their brains are quickly scanned as they rest their heads on the chin support and look at, listen to, or smell various stimuli. For example, in some studies, the dogs are shown hand signals that signify either a treat or no reward. One brain region that Burns focuses on is the caudate nucleus, a structure common to all mammals that becomes activated when an animal experiences a reward. More specifically, this reward center becomes active when individuals are in a state of anticipation especially when they have to make a decision about something that is positive or when they're experiencing something they like. In human studies, for example, this part of the brain activates in response to a romantic partner. Another brain region that interests burns is the amygdala. This region is activated when the dogs are aroused, either positively because they're excited or negatively when they are scared or anxious. Dogs are well known for their noses, which led Burns to wonder how the canine brain interprets smells. In one of his early experiments, Burns presented dogs with familiar odors, the scent of a person and another dog from the subject's household, and unfamiliar ones, scents from a human and a dog the subject had never met before. Burns and his team collected the odors on cotton swabs from particularly odorous areas of the human and dog body, such as the underarm and genital area, respectively. As the dogs smelled these different scents, the researchers scanned and assessed their neuronal activity in the caudate nucleus. We simply wanted to better understand how dogs identify us. It seems reasonable that scent is a big factor in how they identify us as well as each other. We wanted to use the reward system as a gauge into that to see if, in fact, they had positive associations with the smells of people and dogs that they knew. And we figured if dogs were like every other 
animal that has been studied, they tend to have preferential responses to members of their own species. But in fact, what we found in that experiment was the strongest reward response was to the familiar human, more so than the familiar dog, which indicates that we think there was a positive association to the person more than the other dogs in the household. If the dogs are having this positive reward response to the scent of their human, is it because we just feed them and, and that's all it is, transactional relationship with the dog where the dog acts all cute and stuff in exchange for food and shelter? Or is there something more social in this bond where the dog values it for the relationship itself? To answer that question, we did what we call the food versus praise study. We had our cohort of dogs and we did simple Pavlovian or classical conditioning to some new objects. We pick up cheap toys and we stick them on the end of wooden sticks so we can hold them up in front of the dog. A particular toy then is paired or followed with either a food treat or the owner simply popping into view and, and praising the dog going, good girl or good boy. Very quickly, the dogs learn to associate the appearance of that object with the, the corresponding reward. Once they've learned that, we bring them into the scanner and then we simply repeat that. It's during that period where we're holding up those objects and the dog is waiting for their reward, whether it's a food treat or just simple praise, that we can then measure the response and the reward system. The answer turned out to be more complicated than Burns anticipated. The response in the reward center after they were shown a toy connected to either a treat or verbal praise depended on the individual dog. The majority of dogs displayed equal responses in the reward system to both the anticipation of food and the anticipation of praise, which indicates that, as far as their brains are concerned, they're equally valued. Other dogs were at opposite ends of the spectrum. Some displayed a stronger reward system response while waiting for praise, while others responded more to the promise of a treat. The researchers backed up their fMRI findings by having the dogs perform forced choice tests outside of the scanner, where the dog had to decide to move toward their owner or toward food. Caudate nucleus activation, associated with a state of positive anticipation in the fMRI studies, was a strong predictor of each dog's choice in the follow-up experiment. The preference of many dogs for their owners may explain why social praise increases the efficacy of dog training in many instances. Burns' canine brain studies could have practical implications for predicting the success of service dogs. Service dogs undergo intense and specialized training before being assigned to a human companion, which racks up a hefty price tag between $20,000 and $50,000. During training, dogs undergo behavioral assessments to test their suitability for the job. However, many still do not end up becoming successful service dogs. Perhaps a look at each dog's brain could predict which ones are more suited to the role before spending a lot of time, money, and effort in training. We partnered up with an organization called Canine Companions for Independence, who breed and they train the dogs. We built a simulator at their headquarters in California, and they started incorporating the MRI training in their service dog training. Every three months, my team would fly out to California, and we would scan some of these dogs in training on one of a very simple task, just how they respond to hand signals and whether it made a difference, whether the hand signals came from someone they knew or a stranger. And we waited to see how the dogs progressed in their training and whether they ultimately graduated and were paired with a person and, and succeeded or not. 
So that whole process took over two years to collect the data as well as to wait and see what happened to the dogs. And then we went back and asked the question of these dogs who succeeded, was there something different in their brains from those who didn't? And the answer was yes, we actually could identify several brain regions centered on the reward system and face processing regions, as well as the amygdala associated with arousal. And we were able to construct a fairly simple model of how those work and what directions of activity were positive predictors for the dog, as well as negative ones. We were able to predict with 85% accuracy whether a given dog would succeed or not, which was a bit better than the trainers themselves could do with their behavioral metrics. Activity in the brain's reward system indicated a dog's level of motivation and how engaged they were in the training process. An active reward system response was a positive predictor of future success as a service dog, regardless of their familiarity with the person giving the hand signals. Activity in the amygdala during the scans was a negative predictor of service dog success, especially when there's activity in response to hand signals from a stranger. The amygdala could be active for a number of reasons fear of the stranger, or excitement because they have a new play partner. But neither response is ideal for a service dog who needs to stay placid and focused to successfully perform its job. Ultimately, the brain scans revealed mysteries about dog behavior that traditional assessments could not. When the dogs were in the scanner, they were all doing what they were trained to do. It appeared that the dogs all had great self-control. But the fact that we were able to detect some differences in key structures like the amygdala suggests that there's kind of this sub-threshold level of activity that's going on that may not manifest yet at the level of behavior where it becomes obvious that a dog is anxious or excited, but it's just below the surface. And that's the sort of thing that I think brain imaging can excel at in detecting and gives us this insight into the inner world of the dog where we don't have to rely just on the behavior alone. Even though dog owners swear they know what their canines are thinking, it is clear from Burns' studies that the minds of dogs are more complex than many initially imagined. By mapping the brains of dogs using fMRI, Burns continues to uncover new insights into how humans' best friend and canine companion perceives the world. The first thing I would say about dogs is that they are individuals. When we talk about how a dog's brain works, that's like saying, how do people's brains work? We can make some general statements, but it's always couched by this notion that there's tremendous individual differences. Dogs are as different from each other as people are. That has important implications for how we interact with dogs, for one. It means that you know anytime you hear something in the news or a, a paper is published, that doesn't necessarily apply to every dog or in the case of people, to every person. And dogs, because there are many breeds, they come in this tremendous range of sizes and shapes. They may be even more different from each other than people are, just for that reason alone. What I'm interested in is using the brain as a route to understand how they think. Ultimately, I think that's what most of us researchers want to know, which is how does the mind work? How does the brain give rise to the mind? How does it give us the feelings that we have or the emotions? How do we see the world? We're beginning to get closer to that. We can do things in the scanner and we can begin to use some of the methods that that are being used in human neuroscience, things like machine learning and AI approaches to try to decode what the perceptual world of the dog is relative to ours. What's the same and what's different?
Thank you for listening to The Scientist Speaks. This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Nikki Spach. Please join us for our next episode as we learn how the human brain processes cannabinoids and explore their therapeutic potential. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.